Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to another podcast in the mobility space that I think you'll enjoy, the Rideshare Guy podcast by Harry Campbell. Harry has become a trusted expert on all things rideshare, and he may be the only person ever to have driven for Uber and also interviewed Uber's CEO on a podcast. On the Rideshare Guy podcast, Harry interviews a wide range of industry and thought leaders in the rideshare and mobility space. You can find and subscribe to the Rideshare Guy podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to season four. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we talk with Giovanni Cercella, director of the Three Revolutions Future Mobility Program at UC Davis. Giovanni, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your work at UC Davis and the Three Revolutions program? Some people might not know what that is. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about it. Sure. My name is Giovanni Circella. I'm the director of the Three Revolutions of Future Mobility program, which is a research and policy program at the University of California, Davis, that focuses on the changes brought to transportation by what we call the Three Revolutions, share mobility, electrification, and vehicle automation, and how they are changing the transportation world. When you first thought of the three revolutions, were you thinking um, mostly of how it would affect cars or also um, buses, or were you thinking about uh, what we now have with micro-mobility, with these uh, small, lightweight electric vehicles? Absolutely, we were focusing more on the entire transportation ecosystem. The three revolutions are three big technologies that uh, really include a lot of potential applications to different modes. I personally think that when we think about the transportation planning and policy, we really need to put the human being at the center of our discussion. And so we need to focus on creating systems that are user-friendly and that can provide solutions that uh, improve the quality of life of citizens and potentially also reduce the impact on the environment. So today in America, most trips are made by car, but this is not necessarily going to be the, 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 the same thing also in the future. And so we could actually uh, lead to a transportation system that has a higher presence of walking and bicycling, more role of transportation, and a lot of this depends on how technology evolves, but also what are the choices that are made in policy and what are the uh, decisions that are made in the industry and in the government. And we definitely don't want to focus only on vehicles. We want to focus on everything which is related to transportation and how this is evolving. Great. So you've been doing some research also with the, the National Center for Sustainable Transportation on the adoption of shared mobility services and how they impact other modes. Can you tell us a little bit about that study and uh, what kinds of questions you're trying to answer? Absolutely. The National Center for Sustainable Transportation, which is a federally funded university transportation center 
uh, housed here at the University of California Davidson is a great partner for us uh, and uh, provides a lot of support to our program. In particular, in this study, we are developing a longitudinal study. We call it a panel study of emerging mobility in, in California. And the focus of the study is to really to understand how lifestyle are changing in the California households and how this relates with the adoption of new technologies which are already available on the market today, like share mobility options, including ride hailing, car sharing, micro-mobility options, but also what changes will happen in the future when we will have more partial automation and at some point in the future also fully automated vehicles that will bring big changes to the transportation system. And so right now we're in particular interested in understanding in this stage of the project with a sequence of multiple data collections. We started in 2015 and we had another major data collection in 2018 last year, understanding how users in California are adopting new transportation modes. In particular, we focus on car sharing, ride hailing, the pooled optional ride hailing, what we call Uber pool of lift share in many American cities, uh, micro mobility and bike sharing and e-scooter sharing, and how these options are becoming available, people are adopting them, and also what type of users are using these different types of mobility services, and how this is impacting the use of other modes. Are people leaving a car at home because they use Uber or Lyft to go somewhere for their trip. Or this means they will use public transportation less, or walk bike less, or maybe a combination of all of the above. And this is the question in the short term. In the medium term, another big focus of our research is in understanding how vehicle ownership and activity organizations at the household level will change as users adjust them to the availability of new services. In other terms, if we can rely on on-demand mobility. Are households going to reduce the number of vehicles they own because they know that they can rely on these options uh, to fulfill their mobility needs? Or these options are only fulfilling additional needs for mobility and transportation, but still this will not change significantly the vehicle ownership at the household level. And in particular in the future, when we will have mobility as a service with integration of multiple transportation services in just packages or even subscription plans, how this will impact vehicle ownership, how this will change the likelihood that somebody might decide to subscribe for a monthly fee to receive free access to public transportation, um, the certain number of hours of access to car sharing, the use of uh, Uber and Lyft uh, and uh, e-scooters uh, and a combination of all these modes uh, in a one just one pl platform paying for a monthly fee in instead of a fee every time they use one of these services and having an integration of all these services. We certainly are not there yet, but we're already starting to see some changes in our data and it's very important to keep monitoring it and see how transportation is evolving the more technologies are deployed and adopted by California users. Yeah, well, those are all super interesting questions. When you talk about doing a longitudinal study, does that mean you ask the same participants over time, multiple years later, the same questions to see how their views are evolving? Absolutely. In the longitudinal approach that we do for our research, we have uh, a rotating panel approach. This means that uh, every time we do a new data collection, some users will drop out of the study. 
And this is uh, something that happens always in panel study, simply because some users are not uh, uh, available anymore to complete uh, the data collection and provide their information. But we refresh the panel, adding new respondents every time, and so we try to retain as many respondents from the previous years, while at the same time we're actually expanding the basis and the sample size for our study to provide more details about the way technology is used and travel behaviors are changing. It seems like understanding travel behavior with this type of study is very complex, that there are multiple factors. Uh, It seems like there's never really one answer for everyone as to how services are impacting them. Maybe you could start with the ride hail uh, services that you looked at. What are some of the ways that uh, user behavior differed or how you had to break down the different uh, components in order to do the study? Absolutely. There are many factors affecting travel behavior. And um, if we think about ride hailing, for instance, uh, we have collected quite a bit of data in this field, uh, and we've been looking about the way the ride hailing is transforming the relationship with car ownership uh, and the use of other modes, including public transportation and walking and bicycling. Uh, Certainly, one important thing to consider is that there is a lot of heterogeneity in cities, in regions, but also among users. What I mean is, uh, it's not the same being located in downtown San Francisco versus in a suburban neighborhood of the Bay Area or in some other parts of California. And the many differences will relate to the availability of the service, but also the type of users that are there and the needs they have for their mobility needs. But also it depends on the land use and the urban form, the distance of the trips, how people need to travel to get to a grocery store or to a restaurant or wherever is their destination. And it's really affected by the characteristics of cities and regions and the geographic region of interest. And then there are big big differences between different groups of users. Uh, The population is very, very diverse in terms not only of social demographics, but also in terms of taste and preferences. So we're really trying to untangle all these differences. The work that we've been doing in California has identified, for instance, that the use of ride-hailing, like services provided by Uber and Lyft, is really leading to different impacts on the use of other modes in different social demographic groups and types of travelers. A recent study that we published in 2018 was showing, for instance, that we can identify three major groups when it comes of how Uber and Lyft are impacting the use of other transportation services. And for the vast majority of our users in our study, we see that the use of Uber and Lyft somehow has contributed to reducing the use of private vehicles, but also the amount of walking and bicycling people do, and also in certain circumstances has reduced the use of public transportation. And this happens a lot of times in the core part of cities where Uber and Lyft are really going in competition with the other modes that are available. And this happens also among the frequent users of these services. On the other extreme of the spectrum, we have another small group of users that are actually increasing the use of public transportation thanks to Uber and Lyft. And this is because... For instance, they can find the way to go home late in the evening with Uber and Lyft if they leave their home without a car during the day. 
So, for instance, somebody could travel by public transportation during the day and no worry about getting a ride home late at night, even at the time in which public transportation is not available anymore, because they could always get a ride in a safe way using ride hailing. Another way is also to complement the use of public transportation for people that don't live in walking distance from transit. And this is, for instance, the case in which somebody might want to use Uber or Lyft to get to a subway station and from there get into downtown San Francisco instead of paying a very expensive ride for the entire trip with Uber or, for instance, driving their own car and paying for parking, which can be very expensive in many cities. The last group of, uh, of people that I just mentioned is actually rather small. So this means that in the current conditions in which we have the services that have been deployed in the market under market condition, not a lot of users find this kind of behavior of complementing transit with the use of ride hailing very convenient for their needs. We're talking about probably 10% of the users in our sample, but they are also infrequent users of Uber and Lyft. So this means probably it's even a smaller percentage in terms of rides that have this beneficial effect, we could say, on society, congestion, and public transportation. So this is a big area also for policy, because these are the trends that we see today under the current policy environment, but also in the future we could think about realigning the goals of the deployment of these services with societal goals, for example, to reduce congestion, in particular during the peak hour, where we don't want to have more cars on the road, uh, provide better, safer, and the convenient services in times in which people don't feel safe using public transportation. And that could be a great way to coordinate the use of ride hailing and public transportation and also somehow create a system of incentives that uh, align the deployment of new technologies with the goals of sustainability, which in particular in California are particularly ambitious with the goals of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which are somehow happening in other fields, in the energy sector, for instance, but we are still very far away from the goals and ambitions of reducing greenhouse gas emissions from transportation. And so we need to, definitely we need to do more in this area. Right. So you mentioned what one question people seem to have about the impact of things like ride hailing is on car ownership, as you mentioned earlier. Um, how do you study that question? It seems like something that might play out over many, many years since people tend to own cars for a long time. How do you start to evaluate the impact on car ownership for services like Uber and Lyft? And this is definitely a very important research question, but it's also something that's not very easy to evaluate. And this is uh, due for a number of reasons. Probably the most important is that vehicle ownership decisions tend to be decisions that are made over a longer period of time. What I mean is, if today somebody starts using Uber or Lyft, they don't immediately decide to drop their car and or delay the purchase of a new car. But it's rather a medium-term decision that will have some effects after a few years, if there is an effect. The other issue is also to identify the correct direction of causality. A lot of time when we analyze cross-sectional data sets, we have an issue that we don't really identify what is the cause and what is an effect in many phenomena. And this is, for instance, the example also when we talk about uh, ride hailing. 
we could have the people that are in lower vehicle owning households, so they have fewer vehicles in the household, that they could use Uber and Lyft to fulfill their mobility needs. On the other hand, the opposite direction of causality could be also uh, valid because we could have the, somebody that likes these services and they think they are really fulfilling their needs, they decide to live with fewer cars in the household because somehow they can fulfill their mobility needs with other modes. And I, disentangling this uh, uh, complex relationship of causality is not very easy. Having access to longitudinal data and following respondents over time actually helps us in this area because we can actually see what happens after people start using other services, like, for instance, a share mobility and ride hailing in particular, but even the mix of new options, including micromobility nowadays, and see how this leads to decisions in the medium term to modify their vehicle ownership in the household. While at the same time, we can also control for other things that are affecting these decisions. For instance, the decision of having children or getting married or starting a new household. These are the major life events that are really affecting the decision about where to live, how to organize their lifestyle, and also how many vehicles to own in the household. And these are life events that are very difficult to assess in terms of their impacts on vehicle ownership if we only rely on cross-sectional data. So right now, somehow having the panel data is something that really can help us identify some of these answers. Mm-hmm. Now, if you ask me, do you already see evidence now? We probably need to do more analysis on that. And also we need to wait more years to see a really big impact because to date we see the very few users seems to be giving up vehicle ownership because they rely on this new mode. But this doesn't mean that it's not happening. It probably means that it's not happening yet. And so we might need to monitor and study the phenomenon for more years. Right. You mentioned earlier that one of the factors that might impact car ownership would be the availability of mobility as a service subscription plans that bundle together different types of mobility options. Could you explain um, what a MOS service is and um, maybe tell us if, if you were creating a MOS program today, how would you structure it to have the most impact in terms of affecting travel behavior? Mobility as a service is probably going to be the big revolution that we will see in the next few years. Um, the concept of mobility as a service is the one of integrating in one platform multiple mobility services, multiple options to complete travel and fulfill our mobility needs and eventually give also opportunities to people to rely on this platform instead of owning their personal vehicles and just like you know driving when needed. The concept of mobility as a service is probably best applied today in very high density areas. Certain cities of Europe are trying to deploy that with strong coordination with planning agencies and public transportation agencies. Places like Singapore or very high dense cities, they seem to be like, you know, perfect testbed to test the deployment of mobility as a service and also the type of packages they can meet the needs of the users. In the United States, we have a very different reality because in reality, uh, apart from a few exceptions like New York City and a few other cities, most users own a car 
and drive most of the time. So we need to consider that when we want to design a mobility as a service platform and the type of services that could be included in that and also the subscription levels that we could include. Certainly something designed for London or for a German city or a city in Finland will probably not work well for a medium density development in the Central Valley of California. And so we really need to look into like the, the desire of the uh, users, their travel patterns, their needs, but also like you know see the responsiveness potentially to packages that can combine options in one platform. And then we also need to keep expectations low. Mobility as a service certainly could play a role in places like San Francisco, high-density cities with a rather mature population that is rather well-educated and is familiar with technology. That seems to be all like, you know, the indicators of a responsive market that could be interested in adopting these new services. But certainly in other areas, the response, at least at the beginning, will be probably lower. And the ability also mobility as a service to erode the car market and the car-dominated society might be lower. Do you think that the important aspect of mobility as a service is the idea of payment on a single monthly plan, like a subscription where you would get... Uh, public transit and a certain number of trips on Uber and Lyft and and certain amount of micromobility. Do you think what's important is that it is paid for in a single uh, way as a subscription or simply the aspect of trip planning where you pull everything into one place and someone can say, I need to go from A to B uh, what are the various ways I can get there? Both things are very important. The integration of the services is certainly key in harvesting some of the benefits that can come only from the synergies of the multiple modes and multiple services. But at the same time, the trip planning tool and the ability to have uh, an ability to evaluate uh, what are really the best uh, option to travel to a certain destination, which actually might include driving a car but not always. And that is something actually that uh, is uh, a big important component of mobility as a service platform. If we think uh, with an analogy to the television market, uh, many years ago, there was this big important role of television and uh, everybody pretty much was thinking that TVs and uh, the market working in the media business was really having a dominating role in uh, uh, entertainment industry and so on. But then uh, things like Netflix and all the on-demand options arrive. And the Netflix of transportation could be actually something that allow us to customize the option we want to have access to, choose based on our needs, eventually complement multiple options, and also have one platform where we can make an easy payment and we don't need every time that we use a public transportation system to pay a ticket for it. We don't need to have an app to use a bicycle. We don't need to have another app to use a scooter and another app to call for Uber. But we can do everything with a seamless transaction and convenient fares, some access to all the transportation modes that each time is giving us the best option to get somewhere. 
And this could be a combination of using a scooter to a public transportation station, riding the subway, where there will be a car already waiting for us at the terminal station to take us to the final destination. All of this today will require an enormous amount of efforts on the user side to book three different services, make three different transactions, pay three different tickets, probably insert their credit card three times in three different uh, platforms uh, with all the risk that this entails, because today we're also concerned about that, in loss of information, potential hacking of the systems, and so on. What about if we have the possibility of having just one platform? We can call it the Netflix of transportation, the Google of transportation, but something that really reaches us and gives us the opportunity to choose what is best for us on the spot and the time we need to travel with also the combination of multiple modes. And I don't think this will completely eliminate the car dependence of society. But certainly today we have too many trips that are made by car even when it's not the most efficient mode to go to places. And these have to play a lot with the habits of people and their used, they're being used to always like, you know, tend to use that mode just for the lack of alternatives or the lack of information about alternatives. If we make it easy to access, to pay, to uh, use more services, probably we can actually promote more multimodality in this way. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between these shared mobility services and public transit. Um, you've identified with this mobility as a service, how the modes could really work together nicely and probably increase the use of public transit um, in an ideal world. But looking at the data that you've seen so far today, it seems that uh, the impact of shared mobility services on public transit has been quite varied depending on the type of transit and and things of that nature. Um, what have you seen so far with respect to ride hail? Um, and uh, how do you think public transit should evolve in order to uh, provide better service um, in this new era? Um, the competition between ride-hailing and public transportation is due to multiple factors. Among them, they are providing new options. And every time a new option gets on the market, if it is convenient, people will switch to it and will use it. This is also like a problem associated with the weakness of transit. Many places, in particular in California, but also other parts of the U.S., sometimes they don't have a very good quality of public transportation systems. We don't have the public transportation in London in, in most of these places. And so, especially when public transportation is weak and the services are not providing very good uh, ability to travel with a good quality of service, there, those are the places where ride-hailing and shared mobility can get more easily in competition with the public transportation. And our studies actually show that when we look at the rail system and subway systems, they are much more resilient in terms of the competition of ride-hailing. But when we start looking at inefficient bus services, that is the place where actually ride-hailing can be much stronger competitor and actually convince some users in particular to switch away from transit. 
Now, for many years, there has been an expectation that increasing pooling, and so increasing vehicle occupancy with the Uber pool option on lift share, this could lead actually to some benefits because we will have more people in the vehicle and reduce congestion. Well, when it comes to public transportation, this is actually something that can even lead to worse consequences. The lower price of Uber pool, of the lift share, that sometimes it's even cheaper than using BART in, in San Francisco, the, the subway system in San Francisco, that leads actually more users to eventually decide to switch from public transportation to the pooled railing options. And this makes sense at least for three reasons. First is the price level at which these uh, uh, services are provided, which are pretty cheap and they get more into competition with uh, public transportation. The second is associated with uh, the type of customers that are more interested in switching to pool ride-hailing, which are the price-sensitive uh, uh, and cost-sensitive customers, which many times are also the ones that use public transportation. And the third is the location. Pool ride-hailing services are not available everywhere, but they're usually available in the central core of city, or the city, which is actually the same area where there is the potential for more trips by walking and bicycling by public transportation to happen. How can we help public transportation in the future and also what can be the role in the future? Well, certainly we cannot stop the market because the market is evolving and a lot of these companies will continue to push very interesting services on the market. But we can have at least two ways for public transportation to evolve. The first one is a policy environment that might actually promote coordination among modes. For instance, a system of incentives that can promote the use of ride-hailing when this is uh, uh, connected to the use of public transportation. So uh, travelers could use uh, Uber, Lyft to get to public transportation and then transfer to transit at a cheaper rate than if they do the entire trip just in substitution of public transportation. But this will require strong policy from the government, from the regulators, to promote this type of incentives and this type of pricing systems. The second one is associated to public transportation itself. Public transportation probably, uh, they will need to, to reorganize themselves. These services will need to think more about the use of the available resources to provide high quality public transportation in areas where there is more demand, so creating like dense, high-frequency transportation corridors. And then the feeder lines, there would be the areas where the service usually is poorer. This could be actually an area where more options could be explored also for the use of technology. This could be a first last mile access with the TNC services with ride-hailing. It could be a combination with the microtransit options. It could be the deployment of on-demand solution that can have more flexibility and so actually meet the needs of the users. So there could be a number of things that could be actually deployed in order to make in the feeding lines that bring passengers to the main transportation corridor more efficient. And then on the main transportation corridor, focus on providing high-quality, frequent public transportation service, which is actually something that people usually like. And so right. if the service is high-quality, people will use it. Right. 
Great. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about micromobility. This is the shared service that is the most recent. We've had bike share for a number of years, but more recently, dockless bike share, electric bikes, uh, and then in 2018, uh, electric kick scooters. And then also we're just starting to see more and more the seated scooters or mopeds or other forms coming online in certain cities, at least uh, here in the U.S. Um, how have your studies addressed micromobility? Obviously, your data sets were 2015 and 2018, which were, were very different periods. Um, how are you studying micromobility, and what are you starting to see so far in your data? So we're studying micromobility through a number of different approaches. One of these is that we're actually deploying just in this period a new study. So we are deploying a new data collection in eight large American cities. And this is an annual study in the entire U.S. that we're actually doing, deploying a new data collection in the fall of 2019, in 2020 and in 2021. So we want to monitor year over year how the availability and how the use of these new services is evolving. In eight different uh, important cities that include San Francisco, Los Angeles, Sacramento, but also Seattle, Boston, Washington DC, Salt Lake City and Kansas City. So a variety of different regions and different cities uh, with also very different cultural environments climate, availability of services, but also differences in the type of user that we have in these cities. We don't have data yet from that study, but we have data actually from another study that we are administering in coordination with Arizona State University, Georgia Tech, the University of Texas at Austin, and the University of South of Florida. And this is a study in which we are collecting data in four big cities of the South, Phoenix, Arizona, Texas, Austin, uh, Austin, Texas, um, Atlanta, Georgia, and Tampa, Florida. And we already have some pretty good data about micromobility from these four cities. So in particular, the preliminary data we have collected, uh, we have got uh, a good sense of how people are using scooters in these realities and also what is the impact that micromobility is having on the use of other modes uh, by different type of users, by city, and also by the type of trips that people make with the with these scooters. What are you seeing in terms of, um, is, is there data on the impact of micromobility use on other modes, like the impact on public transit use or on car use? Yes, absolutely. We have information now about some of the impacts that micromobility is having on the use of other modes. Among these, uh, I would say that uh, some important findings relate in particular in two areas. The first area is that uh, e-scooters are very often replacing for trips that would have been made uh, otherwise by walking or bicycling. And uh, this is somehow something that is uh, expected considering the short distances for which people use scooters. So we're talking about trips that are usually like you know less than a mile or a mile and a mile and a half, maximum two miles. And these trips are usually made many times with scooters instead of using their own bike or walking or pretty much reducing active transportation in cities. But also these trips and the use of scooters is actually reducing the use of private cars and the use of shared cars under other circumstances. So we see that 
non-trivial percentage of trips. So we're talking about uh, pretty much like you know that range of trips that are below the three miles and on which many people would have driven or they would have used an Uber trip. So they are now being substituted by scooters. So this is actually beneficial effect on cities. So uh, e-scooters are somehow eroding the lower base, the lower range of trips that were made by Uber and Lyft or by using a personal private car. And this is leading like, you know, to more people to rely on the micro-mobility options, which is somehow good. It's leading to some issues associated with the safety and interaction with the other uh, users in the city, but it's also potentially r reducing a little bit uh, the vehicle-mass travel with cars in cities. And that is uh, something desirable. And what about uh, the use of micromobility vehicles as first mile or last mile uh, with respect to public transit? Is, have, have we seen any data yet as to whether uh, either bikes or scooters are complementary to transit or competing with transit? We don't have a good understanding with that. So far, I think that the use of uh, micromobility options, scooters and bikes, uh, tends to complement many times the use of public transportation. Early studies, uh, they were looking at the dockless, sorry, at the docked-based uh, uh, bike-sharing systems. They were showing actually that uh, it was having kind of uh, a dual effect. It was replacing for the use uh, of transit in the central core of cities which was not a big deal, actually, because uh, those were areas where usually public transportation many times is very congested and crowded, but it was also increasing ridership and providing better access uh, to the terminal stations of public transportation and so complementing public transportation in those areas. With the new dockless bike-sharing and e-scooter sharing systems, uh, the situation is a little bit more complex. Uh, we hope to have some good data in the new data collection we are completing now in uh, the eight cities in the United States. Certainly, it's a, I would say it's a more complex topic to investigate. There's not a clear direction of impact so far, but if I have to guess, I think the potential for micromobility to complement transit and to promote a culture of non-car travel is probably dominant. And so somehow we might expect actually some positive effects out of this. And so when you um, do these studies, it seems like there are many factors to consider, but when you add in micromobility to a potential offering like mobility as a service where you're trying to encourage multimodal travel, it seems like there could be some interplay between micromobility and ride hailing and public transit where uh, they, the existence of micromobility could actually change people's willingness to uh, consider multimodal travel. Absolutely. Uh, micromobility can actually be that nice uh, additional feature to complement uh, the other options for transportation and might be actually one of the reasons for which people decide to be more multimodal. And that's certainly one of the possibilities in particular in the mobility as a service space and in terms of having more multimodal transportation in cities, that could actually be a new trend in the near future. When we think about the competition between modes, we need to think that today a vast majority of trips in the United States is still made by cars. And we're really talking about the vast majority of these trips. 
So when we talk about the public transportation or ride hailing, all these modes, they really account for very few percentage points uh, of the mode share in the aggregate. So somehow, if the micromobility options summed up to public transportation and to other forms of share mobility can provide a more complete way for making trips, this actually can become something that starts eroding the vast majority of trips made by car. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is what we will observe more in the next few years. One of the interesting factors around micromobility use is the question of infrastructure. I think it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, but most people feel that the presence of electric scooters and electric bikes in cities has brought in a new wave of people considering active transportation modes, and that that could be kind of a tipping point for cities to uh, put in more protected lanes and other infrastructure uh, for micromobility. How do you think uh, this will impact policy and how can cities further encourage these active modes? Planners have been struggling for many years about uh, this problem of providing proper infrastructure for non-car users, but at the same time justifying these investments when these services are used by very few people. So again, it's a chicken and egg problem because if we don't have good bicycling infrastructure, people don't feel safe to bicycle. But at the same time, where there are not enough people bicycling, cities many times have a lot of resistance to invest a huge amount of money in new bicycling infrastructure because this could lead to investing funding in something that is rarely used by the users. So now with micromobility, we have an opportunity actually to support bicycling infrastructure in cities. Uh, studies have shown that the speed at which uh, e-scooters travel is uh, fairly similar to the one of bicycles. And interaction between these two modes, uh, even if not perfect, it still can be uh, fairly uh, good in terms like, you know, having combination of multiple users uh, riding scooters and bicycles and the same infrastructure using bike lanes. Uh, this is certainly not the case for cars. The interaction between scooters and cars is absolutely very dangerous. So if we need to make decisions, much better to group together scooters with bicycles rather than having the risk that scooters run on the car road and then we have interaction with a pickup truck, SUVs, or even heavy-duty trucks on this road with a lot of risk in terms of safety and in terms of interaction and potential accidents. So this is also opening new opportunities because cities finally they have the opportunity to justify investments because the sum of the users of e-scooters and bicyclists, they actually provide now the critical mass to justify investments in bicycle infrastructure that can reshape cities. And this can sometimes can come also at the cost of reducing the space for cars, reduce the space for parking, so somehow promote also some policies that could reduce the convenience of traveling by car and somehow lead to some more shifting in the model distribution in cities. Yeah, well, it seems like that's going to be the best way for us to get to uh, a more multimodal uh, uh, transportation system. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to talk about your research. This has been really interesting. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks again to Giovanni for joining us. If you're enjoying our podcast, 
please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes, please check out our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.